invite you to open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, and we will read verses 5 through 15. Again, 1 Corinthians 3, 5 through 15. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it. Because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. This is God's word. Would you join with me in prayer? Lord, may we build upon the foundation which is Christ. May we seek to do so with excellence that we might build for you in the strength that you provide the absolute best that we can. And Lord, you are faithful and by your grace you have given each one of us gifts and abilities and have provided for us in so many ways. And Lord, we ask that we would be able to use those gifts to build upon the foundation of Christ, that we might build a life, build a worship of you that is worth the God of whom we worship. But Lord, we cannot do these things on our own. For you are the one who provides the strength. You are the one who provides the raw materials that we might build anything, Lord. So may we as your people find our foundation in you and turn to you for, the, for every part of what we do. And God, as we come to your word, as we seek the instruction of your word and the exhortation of your word and just the application of your word to our hearts, Lord, We ask that you would grant that prayer. That you would grant that we might know you and that your word might be brought to bear upon our hearts that we might live in accordance with it. Lord, in this season as we prepare for the upcoming school season and upcoming ministry season, we ask that you would help us, help our families, help the people of Elk Point Baptist Church make choices that would identify themselves with you. That as we look 
at our schedules, that what might be made clear is that you are first, you are of first and foremost importance. That we might make time to worship together with our brothers and sisters and guard that time jealously. That we might make time to serve in our church. That we might make time to visit and fellowship with our brothers and sisters outside of Sunday mornings. Lord, there are many within our midst who are not here, who are in need of that kind of care, that kind of concern, that time of fellowship with the brothers and the times of prayer with the brothers and sisters and the faith. Lord, we lift many from our midst who are sick or injured or healing from injury or healing from surgery or whatever it might be, Lord. We think particularly of uh, Niels and Isabel as Niels continues to heal from his stroke and Isabel as she attempts to work out the details of her move to Edmonton. We think of Loretta Moores who is recovering from her surgery. We thank you for sustaining her through that and for your goodness even in the midst of a, a trying time for the Moores family. We think of Lorna's sister Eileen and her husband Gus and the incredible difficulty of being hospitalized for her dementia and the, the process of trying to find a suitable living arrangement for the two of them. Lord, there are so many needs. We could pray all day and we would not cover the needs of even just our church, much, much less the, the needs of your church around the world. But you know these things. Your eyes are upon your saints. Your eyes are upon each one of us. And you know what we would pray even before we ask, and yet you tell us to pray. So may we pray with one another. May we pray in the quietness of our rooms. And may we lift our needs before you, our joys before you, our sorrows before you, knowing that you hear when we speak and that you have promised to answer us. And we lift the global church to you. We think of our immediate connection with the global church in the Cell Baptist Church and with the Bible-believing Christian church led by Pastor June. And we thank you for the visit that we had with June and Amy and the upcoming visit that we have planned, that in your will we will experience starting next Sunday. We pray that you would help them to continue ministering faithfully for your gospel in the Philippines. We also think of your people in Morocco and all of the people of Morocco in the earthquake that happened yesterday. Ask that uh, you would be with your people, using them for your glory to care for those who are sick and injured and those who have lost loved ones. And that even in this, this might be an opportunity for your gospel to be advanced even in Morocco. And Lord, there are so many needs around the world, and we lift them to you as well. We think of our upcoming Orientation Sunday, 
and the ministries that are going to be starting, the Bible studies, the kids' programs, the youth programs, all of them, Lord. And we ask that these things would be used not for our own glory, not for our own entertainment or enjoyment, although we might enjoy and be entertained by the time that we would have together, but we ask primarily that you would be glorified in everything that we do as a church. Lord, we commit this word that you have spoken to us, to you, and ask that you would apply it to our hearts this morning, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So we have officially moved out of the book of Ephesians, Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus. And I confess that every time I get to the end of one of these series, I am a little nostalgic for the, oh, I enjoyed my time in Ephesians, and now it's on to the next passage. But I couldn't help, as I was preparing for our message today, to uh, look back at our time in Ephesians. I saw that it shouldn't surprise us that the last exhortation that Paul made to his audience in Ephesus was to take up both the defensive and offensive armaments of God. For our world is, by nature of the curse upon it and the people within it, a hazardous place. All the more so for one who is going into the world, not as a friend of the world, but as one who is counter to the things of the world. For the follower of Christ, we go into the world as ambassadors from an opposing kingdom. The kingdom of God, the kingdom which we live as followers of Christ, is utterly opposed to the kingdom of this world, which is under the authority and leadership of our great enemy of our souls and the prince of the power of the air, as he is called in Scripture. But yet our God, in his unimaginable patience, has delayed his judgment upon this kingdom of the world and has not yet closed borders with this opposing kingdom. The border to God's kingdom remains open, and rather than isolating us from this fallen and wicked kingdom from whence we've come, we are instead sent back into it as ambassadors for the gospel, ambassadors of peace to the citizens of this fallen and wicked kingdom, called to proclaim the gospel and commanded by Christ to go make disciples of these nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, to teach them to observe all that he has commanded us, we do not do so alone, for behold, he is with us even to the end of the age. And yet, going into this world, accompanied by Christ, we are not likely to find ourselves always welcome in this enemy-occupied territory. We bring light into a realm of darkness, a realm of darkness that would overcome the light if it could, but praise God, the light of our Savior cannot be overcome. But that doesn't mean that we as his emissaries will not endure the assaults of the enemy if we are faithful to the commission of our Lord. 
So as we've talked about much lately, our orientation Sunday is next Sunday, and we will be going into a new sermon series. I am not going to steal from my own thunder and the thing that I have to talk about next week, so I'm not going to tell you what the sermon series is yet. But we're going to spend some time in a psalm this morning that will hopefully lay some foundations for it. We're going to look at Psalm 11. Psalm 11 is a psalm of David. And Lord willing, this should equip us some for our upcoming series that we will talk about next week. But would you read with me Psalm 11? To the choir master of David. In the Lord I take refuge. How can you say to my soul, flee like a bird to your mountain? For behold, the wicked bend the bow. They have fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see, his eyelids test the children of man. The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Let him rain coals on the wicked, fire and sulfur and scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. This is God's word. As we start out in this psalm, that title at the beginning to the choir master of David identifies this as a psalm of David and David was a man who was not unfamiliar with enemy territory or hostile lands. From his younger years battling bears and lions on behalf of sheep to battles against giant Philistines to flight from his own jealous king who would seek to kill him to leading the people of Israel into battle as King David. David's life was a life of warfare. In fact, in 1 Chronicles 28, we could read that King David rose to speak to the people of Israel, the gathered people, and he said, Hear me, my brothers and my people. I had it in my heart to build a house of rest for the ark of the covenant of the Lord and for the footstool of our God, and I made preparations for building. But God said to me, You may not build a house for my name, for you are a man of war and have shed blood. So marked by warfare was this man, this great king, that he was not even permitted to build God's temple. And somewhere amidst one of the many conflicts of David's life, we aren't given a timeline or time frame for this, but amidst one of these conflicts, we come to his prayer in Psalm 11. And before we get too far into this psalm, I do want to clarify something. Many of you will probably have heard the, this sermon by Matt Chandler, or at least a quote from it. Um, the sermon was titled, The Bible is Not About You. And in the message, he makes this observation, and this is the quote that everyone's familiar with. He says, I want to be straight. I love you enough to be straight. 
you are not David. Your trouble in life is not Goliath. And Chandler here in this message is pointing out accurately that this book here, the Bible, is not Josh Bateman's story. This is not your story. You can't just sub your name in here and say, all right, anything that I want to be me, I can put myself in there, and anything that I want to be my troubles, I can put that in there, and I can sub in. This book is the story of God's unfolding grace and redemption for his people from before the creation of the world through his son, Jesus Christ. It's not your story, it's his story. And sometimes we're tempted to put ourselves into the David role and say, God is going to slay my giants, and if I'm faithful, my Goliath is going to fall before me. But as Chandler said, you are not David, and your problems are not Goliath, and God is not a supporting character in the blockbuster movie that is your life. So while we can't drag and drop ourselves into anywhere we want in the Bible. We can't just appropriate God's story for our own benefit. There is a way in which you can be David. You might not be God's chosen implement to slay that giant in your life, but particularly in the Psalms. And that's one of the beautiful things about the Psalms. These are largely songs and prayers from David or Solomon or others, we can swap our names in. I can't just say, okay, the giant of my credit card debt or my gambling addiction, God is going to help me slay that giant and swap myself in and my problems in for Goliath. That's a common tactic in prosperity preaching circles. But I can most definitely and with confidence speak and pray along with David. The same inspired prayers and declarations of God's character as we find in the Psalms. Why can I not put myself in David's shoes while he's spinning that sling over his head? But I can put myself in his shoes here in the Psalms. Because David was a human in need of God's help. And he has cried out in the Psalms, God help me. He struggled as we struggle, and we can put ourselves in right there and say, God, you have shown yourself faithful. Do so again. Please help. And also, just as in David's days, the God that David is calling out to is the same God today. The same God that did put that giant on the ground is the same God that we worship today. So when David declares something about the character of God, or any person in Scripture declares something about the character of God, we can take that to the bank because that God, as long as that person is declaring the truth about who God is, And the Bible is really good about kind of letting us know when someone has an inaccurate view of God. Usually that's as part of their correction. 
But if someone is faithfully declaring the character of God through the inspired word of Scripture, we can take that to the bank that that is the same God that we worship today. So when we pray or sing the Psalms, we are praying and singing to the same God that the psalmist sang to thousands of years ago. So, that's my rabbit trail. You're not David, but in this psalm you are David because we are praying to the same God and praying much of the same prayers. Anyways, back to Psalm 11. This psalm pretty nicely splits into three sections. The first is one sentence long. It's David's declaration, just the first little piece of verse 1. And then we move into the accusation of whoever this might be in verse 1 through to uh, the end of verse 3. And then verses 4 through 7 are again David's response. So section 1, in the Lord I take refuge. This declaration sets the tone for our passage and David confirms his trust for the Lord. David is about to get some very bad advice. And in this psalm, the situation is vague. The opponent is vague. The opponent's motivations are non-existent. But all of this only serves to make this psalm that much more roundly applicable for us today. What was David going through? Was his opponent a friendly advisor, a wicked enemy, Was it even his own doubting inner monologue? We don't know. But whatever the situation, and whatever this despairing advisor, in the Lord we may take refuge. Whatever the circumstances, well-fed or hungry, living and plenty or in want, we can do all that we are called to do through him who gives us strength. It seems likely, just kind of from the tone of this passage, that this may have been a taunting enemy, or perhaps it was David's own doubting monologue. So David says, in the Lord I take refuge. And then he asks this question, how can you say to my soul? And then from there, down to the end of verse 3, we have, you should look in your Bible, you'll see quotation marks. This is the kind of accusation. You take refuge in the Lord? Flee like a bird to your mountain. For behold, the wicked bend the bow. They have fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? This is what David's left with. What can the righteous do? This accusation says, run. Fly from the ruin that approaches. Abandon your foolish hope. The wicked will strike you from the shadow so that you don't even know what hits you. And all of this builds that question posed by this voice. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? And in that Verse 3 is what led me to this psalm this morning. 
I did love kind of the vague subjects, which foundations, is it the foundations of society, kings and judges and prophets, is it human institutions, church, state, courts, etc., is it the foundations of our values and our morals, justice, equality, love, etc., we don't necessarily know which, if any of these things, or all of these things are specifically intended, but I think that's the point. The world in which we live, that same world that is so utterly hostile to the things of God and to his people, have been asking this question since the beginning. Ever since God called for himself a people, the world's been asking this question of, when the rug, whatever rug it is that you religious wingnuts are standing on, when that rug is pulled out from under you, what are you going to have left? The implication of this question, this arrow from the dark, is that when our shaky religious foundation finally crumbles, we will find ourselves in utter ruin because we have chosen the wrong horse. Who will save you when you realize that all that spiritual hokum that you believe is just smoke and mirrors? You've built your life on being a Christian, and then you finally realize that that's a bunch of garbage, and now what? You've wasted how much time? You could have been doing X. You could have been having fun. You could have been building yourself a kingdom here on this earth. And I know I'm putting myself in the accuser's shoes here, But this is legitimately the attitude of our world. Our world may sometimes tolerate the kind of impotent, watered-down, nominal belief that acknowledges, okay, there might be a God, but he has no real requirements, at least no requirements of anyone who hasn't already signed up for this craziness that you religious people have signed up for. But this world does not tolerate vital Christianity as described in the Scriptures. Our world cannot tolerate what's in here if we actually stick to it. It cannot, because our world is wicked, and this, and what this describes is holiness and righteousness, and that is oil and water. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Question posed to David and to us today, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? And I mean, this is being posed to the king of a nation, so maybe his initial response would be, okay, the specifics of how one would try to hold together a fracturing society, a theocracy, become a kingdom that he is now leading. But that's not David's response. He's not going the institutional route of this is how I would hold this country together. was not David's response, and it shouldn't be ours. And that's why when I read the history of mankind, church history has been woven through there, and church history has not been perfect. Church history has been full of failures. Church history has included things like the Crusades. Church history has included things like racism. Church history has included things like any of the wicked things that has infiltrated our world that we have allowed to infiltrate the church. 
But when I see failures within the church, I don't see a failure of God. I see the failure of men. I grieve over these failures and the fact that God's name is associated with them, but my faith is not diminished by any means. My faith, my hope, my certainty is grounded in our Lord and the accomplished work of His Son made flesh, Jesus Christ. And that's where David goes. Though not quite yet to Jesus because it's a little bit early for that. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? My foundation can't be destroyed. Rather than turning to any other response or hope, David turns his eyes squarely upon the Lord. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see, his eyelids test the children of man. The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Let him rain coals on the wicked, fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous, he loves righteous deeds, the upright shall behold his face. The wicked may bend their bows to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. Our human foundations may crumble. But ultimately our one true foundation will never fail. As he is the one upon whom every lasting foundation is built. Colossians 1, Paul says of Christ, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn of the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Ultimately, when we turn our eyes to Christ, the question of, well, what about your foundation? It becomes a moot point. What if the foundations are destroyed? They can't. Our foundation is the foundation of all things. He is the one in whom we live and move and have our being. He is the one by whom all things hold together. When Charles Spurgeon was preaching through this psalm, he said of our foundations, time cannot shake and eternity will only confirm. The spiritual foundations cannot be removed, but the temporal foundations can be. The foundations of civil government, the foundations of commerce, the foundations of one estate, the foundations of trust between man and man, these may be removed. War may arise. What can the righteous do? We can say, the Lord give, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord, from Job 121. And I love this. If the ship is wrecked, our treasure is not aboard it ship is wrecked, our treasure is not aboard it. The, the foundations of this world could crumble and turn to ash, but our foundation is not in this world. To steal from one of Spurgeon's contemporaries, pastor and hymn writer Edward Mote, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Our Lord is the one on the throne in heaven, but he's not sitting idly, he's not sleeping, 
You might remember Elijah's contest with the prophets of Baal and his taunts. Cry aloud, for he is a god. Either he is musing or he is relieving himself. Maybe he's on a journey or he's asleep and has to be awakened. Our Lord needs no awakening. Though enthroned in heaven, he is everywhere present. His eyes see all. His eyes are on the wicked and on the righteous, and they are assessing every man, woman, and child. He is making judgments. He takes pleasure in the righteous, but the wicked will receive only his condemnation. We are asked, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? And our response is the same as David's. The Lord, the Lord, the Lord, the Lord, the Lord, the Lord. Five times, the Lord. His eyes see, his eyelids test. He loves righteous deeds. We shall behold his face. What if your foundations are destroyed? Won't be. The question that should come to our mind, though, if we really care to grow strong roots in our faith, is this. If we are being challenged on our faith, and we will be, when we are challenged in our faith, and we say, well, God says, or God does, or God is, what gives us any kind of confidence that we can know these things? If our response is to turn our eyes to the Lord, then how can we turn our eyes to the Lord to know him? How can we claim to know anything about the almighty, invisible, all-powerful, spiritual creator of the universe? Who among us has seen the Lord? Who has known him and walked with him? Who has heard his voice and spoken to him face to face? Can any of us claim to have such an understanding and such, such an intimate knowledge and relationship with him? None of us have been privileged as the disciples were to actually get to touch the wounds in the hands and the feet and the side of our Savior. We can't say, how do I know it's true? Well, I, I saw him. I touched the holes in his hands. So people did. That was confirmed. But us, 2,000 years removed, how can we have the same measure of hope and conviction as the disciples did, as the apostles did who actually saw and knew and spent time with him, saw the miracles he did? How do we even know of Christ who is the culmination of the story of redemption that God's been writing since before the beginning of creation? Give ear to the very first words of the very first psalm. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seats of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. It is God's word by which God is known. We know God because he has revealed himself to us in his word. That's why Martin Luther, when he sparked the Protestant Reformation some 500 years ago, would so tenaciously cling to the sufficiency and the inerrancy of Scripture. 
and the fact that our words as man pale in comparison. If your faith is built on the sermons that you've heard, it doesn't have roots. It doesn't have staying power because as much as I work to try and preach well, I am not the Word. I am only a servant of the Word. Luther said, We must make a great difference between God's Word and the Word of man. A man's word is a little sound that flies into the air and soon vanishes. But the word of God is greater than heaven and earth, yea, greater than death and hell, for it forms part of the power of God and endures everlastingly. How then can we answer the question when the world attacks our foundation? Do we have to flee and cower before the onslaught of critical thought and skepticism and atheistic sentiment when our world says what you believe is a bunch of garbage why do you bother do we have to say I just do and turn away from that conversation because we have no answer no by no means our foundation is found in the Lord of hosts and we know this Lord by his own revelation to us he by his spirit has authored a book our Bibles, 66 books, originally written, Old and New Testament, verbally inspired by the Spirit. And this is our final authority in all matters of faith and practice. And it is the basis of our union as believers. And it is these words by which we are bound to the foundation, which is Christ. There's a reason why Christ, when he was tempted out in the wilderness, when he was tempted by Satan, he did not come back against Satan's temptations with logic. Well, I can't do that because da 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 da. Or he did not come back against Satan with just simple endurance. Well, I'm just going to ignore him. He came back against these temptations with the very words of Scripture it is written was his refrain, and so it should be for us. It is by the words of Scripture that we can do as David does and take refuge in the Lord. What does this relatively short psalm in Psalm 11, I can't imagine that I've spent a whole lot of time hearing preaching from Psalm 11. What does this little psalm near the beginning of the Psalms have for us this morning? It offers and reminds us of the foundation of our faith, that being the Lord himself. In him we take refuge. Later on in the Psalms, in Psalm 18, David says, The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in him. We need not fear the wicked, nor should we be swayed from the path of righteousness. For the Lord is the one to whom every person will answer and who will judge both the living and the dead. We can also be reminded from this psalm that our world, our enemy, the devil, and our own fears and doubts will absolutely attempt to chip away at our foundation. And if our foundation is built on the shifting sands of human thought or human preaching or 
human anything, we have no foundation. But if our foundation is built upon Jesus' blood and righteousness, if our foundation is built upon the Word of God, then our foundation is unshakable. Our foundation drills down to the very fabric of the beginning of our universe and before. The very matter of which our world is composed, the moral ethics that humanity conducts themselves with, the relational aspect with which drives most of us, all of these things find their genesis, their purpose, and their parameters in the God that created them. That means our world does not set the tone. Our world does not set the guidelines. Our world does not get to define how anything goes. Everything finds its purpose and its guidelines in the Lord. In Romans 1, Paul tells us that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For all they, though they knew God, they did not honor him as God nor give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Why then would we be surprised when our world rejects the truth? Finally, we can be reminded to look to the pages of Scripture that we might remain bound to the foundation of our Lord. Scripture will necessarily turn our eyes towards God and towards the thing of God because it is of God. These words are breathed out by God. These words are living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. We come to these living and active and effectual words to be grounded, and we may speak these words, we may pray these words, we may know these words, memorize these words, teach these words, and generally carry them with us at all times. That's why there was the commandment in Deuteronomy 6, when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise, you shall bind these words as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. These words, these words of Scripture, if you find yourself regularly saying, I need a refuge, I need somewhere to go that is safe, you're not going to find it in your safe space. You're not going to find it in your hobby. You're not going to find it in your work. You're not going to find it in your family. You're not going to find it in yourself. You are going to find your refuge and your safety in the Word of God. And if you look for it anywhere else, you are wasting your time. Maybe you're like me. When I first read David's question at the beginning of Psalm 11, I thought my initial reaction was to think that he was kind of asking this question with kind of a timidness or a confusion. How can you say to my soul, flee like a bird to your mountain? It's kind of that wounded, how could you? Tone that came to my mind. That was my first impression. Taking time and spending time reading what he's saying here. <laughs> 
we might be better reading that with its own incredulous and maybe even scoffing tone of our own. Flee like a bird to your mountain, for behold, the wicked bend the bow. They have fitted their arrow to the string and shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? How could you, your mockers and scoffers, how could you, the wicked and the lost, how could you, the doubting voices in our head, say these things when we know that the Lord is in his holy temple? When we know that the Lord's throne is in heaven, how could you say, fly, run away? We know that the Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked. We know that he loves righteous deeds, and the upright shall see his face. This is our foundation. How could you say to my soul, flee like a bird to your mountain? Flee from what? My foundation is in the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that you would give us the kind of confidence that seems to be coming from David's words here. The kind of confidence that when we are assailed by the skepticism and the outright hostility of this world against the things that you have told us to be true in your word, that they wouldn't shake us one bit. That we would have utter and total confidence that you are our foundation. You are our hope. You are eternal. You are immovable. You are all-powerful, everywhere present, all-knowing. And you have chosen us, your people. You have revealed yourself to us through your word. You have sent your Son, Jesus, that we might be reconciled to you and have relationship with you. You will send your Son, Jesus, to come again to take us to be with you if we have trusted in him. Give us confidence. Give us faith that we can trust that, that we can take that to the bank. And Lord, we confess that that has not been our experience at all times. We confess that our faith has been weak. That we have wondered ourselves how these things in your word could stand up to all of the scientific advancement and the argued rhetoric of this world. we confess that we have sometimes asked, how could you say to my soul, flee like a bird to your mountain, as we've been fleeing? Like Paul encouraged us in Ephesians, help us to stand firm, to take up the full armor of God and to stand firm for the cause of the gospel wherever you would place us. Give us the confidence to declare your truth when we are given the opportunity, even when that opportunity is something that could cost us.
And Lord, may we as your people encourage one another in this. May we seek wise counsel. May we seek to understand the truths of your word that we might apply them and hold fast to them. May we be people that hold the name of the Lord. Thank you for these things. We pray them in Jesus' name. Amen. So this morning as we close, we get a new benediction. The Lord willing, will hold us over for a while. The psalmist said in Psalm 40, verse 4, Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after a lie. You have multiplied, O Lord, my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts towards us. None can compare with you. We will proclaim and we will tell of them, yet they are more than can be told. Go, church. Go tell of the wondrous deeds of your God, and his glorious thoughts towards us as people. You're dismissed. Lord willing, we will see you next week for Orientation Sunday, and welcome our brother Roly and his wife Marilyn here as well.